Well, that was some great singing, great worship. I don't know if it's just me or um, I'm closer to the speaker or what, but it sounds like we're all singing louder. Well, we've been looking at marriage and Ephesians. We're at the uh, end of chapter 5 this morning and we're considering the husband's duty, the husband's role in marriage. Really, all this goes back to 518. 518, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, or really by the Spirit's a better translation. How are we filled by the Spirit? Well, we're filled by the Spirit with, of course, the, the Word of Christ, more of Christ, more of His teaching. But Paul's been telling us how to go about that. And one of them is singing. We're singing to one another, he says, and the Spirit is working in us. The singing to the Lord, of course, in our hearts, giving thanks. And then he goes into this idea of submission. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the wife submitting to the husband. Last week, we were, of course, blessed to install a new elder. Wasn't that a great celebration? And this morning now, we aim right at the husbands. And we want to talk about a spirit-filled husband. What does it mean for a husband to be living in such a way that the Spirit is filling him with more of Christ's likeness? Let me read the text to you, Ephesians 5. This is a rich text. And, and guys, just to warn you, this is a high standard. So as I read it, just think about if you match up to this and where you need some work. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, help us uh, to obey this text. And whether it's a husband today or, or the wife two weeks ago that we looked at or the children coming up and parents and employers and employees, Lord, help us to love your Bible and to do what it calls us to do. Often we don't measure up and we need your help, Lord. Every day we need your help. So give us your grace. Help the husbands in this congregation to love their wives like Christ loved the church. We ask this humbly in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this is a difficult text in many ways. Not difficult to understand, although there's a few challenges. But just like I said with the submission, the wives submit to your husband, it's difficult to obey. It's hard for us as men, as husbands, to put this into practice. Oftentimes, husbands will be quite an expert on verses 22 through 24. They're good at telling their wife 
how they should submit and reminding them of this passage in the text. But they're not so good at understanding and or applying 25 through 33. You know, Paul devotes over three times more space to the husband's duty than the wife's. Maybe because we're more stubborn. Maybe because we're more sinful. Maybe because uh, we're leading. Maybe because God has put man as the head over woman. Three times more words are devoted to the husband. It's about Christ and his church being a picture, really, of marriage. It's about our marriage being a picture of Christ and the church. It's an analogy. It's a comparison. And what I want you to see here is that Paul's going to tell us four ways that a husband should love their wives. Four ways. I don't have to tell you that marriage is under attack today, outside the church and inside the church. I don't have to tell you that marriage is hard. It's difficult. It takes work. I've been blessed with 22 years of marriage, and it's been a joy. But you have to put in work every day. It's not something that just happens. Marriage is not just an emotion that happens in the beginning and then that'll last you the rest of your life. It takes work. And for the husband to love is something that he's got to be doing actively. And so Paul knows this is going to be a challenge. That's why he addresses love as the the main issue for the husband. And he's going to open up now these ways in which a husband should love their wives. How, How should a husband love his wife? Like Christ loves. That's the main point. Every one of these that we're going to look at, every one of these four ways, is going to be compared to Christ. What has Christ done for the church? You see, he's our model. Even though we have good examples, you might think of a man that you know of that is a good husband, a godly husband, and that's good. You can imitate others as they imitate Christ. But, but ultimately, we're looking at Christ because we can't compare ourselves to another man. Sometimes that's too easy. I'm a better husband than that guy. I love my wife more than him. Look at what he did. That's too easy. We're going to twist that. We're going to do what we want with that. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, you're going to find that that's hard. But what a blessing marriage is. Yes, it takes work. But everything that's good takes work. Christ didn't come to the cross without doing work on the cross. He came to the earth to give himself as a sacrifice. So four ways that the husband should love their wives. And by doing that, they're going to be filled by the Spirit. Number one, I've already hinted at, a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. That's what the word love means in the Bible. It's a type of love that is sacrificial. Husbands, love your wives. Love your own wife, husband. You may have heard of agape love. This verb here is agapeo. Agape love. It's a love that often is in the scriptures to speak of God's love for us, to speak of loving one another in the church, and also hear husband's love for his wife. Now, it didn't get used much outside the Bible. You didn't find this specific Greek word in ancient writings. In fact, reading in Ephesians here, agape so much, and the verb form as well, would have surprised the Ephesians, any of the Gentiles, because it's just not a word that the pagans use much. In fact, The way they thought of their wives was quite different than what the Bible teaches. The Greeks and Romans, they never used this verb in relation to the duties of a husband. Even in Jewish literature, literature, not the Bible, of course, but other literature, they did not use this verb to describe a love of a husband for a wife. They rarely exhorted love for their wives. 
then submission was the big topic. Every husband in the ancient world was ruler of his home. And he was forcing submission on his wife in the pagan world. To the point where even a man could take his wife's life and often wouldn't be punished for it. And yet here we have a completely different example in the Bible. Husbands, love your wife. Even today, uh, people have turned love around into what they've wanted it to be. So it doesn't really matter what the culture says, whether it's ancient Rome or Greece, whether it's modern times. We've got to look to the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about love? And that's what Paul's getting at. He's going to quote even from the Old Testament. He wants us to see Jesus' love for the church, a biblical love. Agapao, a sacrificial commitment to the welfare of another person. Regardless, regardless of that person's response, what he or she might give to me in return. That's what it means. It's sacrificial because it doesn't matter what the other person does. You're giving of yourself. A sacrificial commitment to the welfare of another person regardless of what they do for you. Regardless if she does something for you that you want or not. One commentator said it's love irrespective of merit, even to the undeserving. It's the kind of love that God had for his people. It's the kind of love God continues to have for his people. Even though we're undeserving, we get his love. This is what husbands are being called to here. And why does he pick out love of all the things the husband should do? We know that the husband should provide, protect, all these things. Why does he start here with love? Well, because love encompasses all of those things. But it's also the thing that men were going to struggle with the most in marriage. Remember, I took you back to Genesis last week, Genesis 3, 16, a couple of weeks ago. And it says, as part of the curse to the wife, yet your desire will be for your husband. The desire there, I said, is a, a desire to rule over a desire to not submit, but to rule in the marriage. And he will rule over you. So she desires to take control. She desires to lead. And his response and his desire is to be harshly ruling over her. The idea is that he wants to rule harshly, which is not love. It's the opposite of love. In fact, we see this in Colossians 3.19. Paul just says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Do not be embittered against them. See, that's the man's tendency. That's where we often go. That's where we're tempted, guys. And marriage is to go to bitterness, anger, wrath, resentment, a lack of love. Because God has given us the authority, the leadership, we misuse it. So Paul knew, he knew it would be hard for a woman just wanting to submit unless they had the Spirit. Now he's saying, you have the Spirit in you, and He's going to fill you more with the Word of Christ if you'll submit to your husband. And husbands, love your wives. This is what you're going to struggle with. And now here's what that means. He's going to start to open this up. What does sacrificial love look like? Just as Christ also loved the church. This is a standard for us. The call here is not to, to love your wife to the same degree or level that Christ did. We can't reach that. How, how can you love your wife so much like Christ that you are willing to somehow pay the penalty for her sin? That's not possible. That's not what Paul's saying here. The love of Christ is beyond comprehension. He's already told us in Ephesians 3.19. What's the idea? It's in the same way. It's in the same manner. He's not saying you need to go to the cross and die for your wife. Now, you may be called to die for her to protect her. 
But he's saying in the same type of way that Christ died and loves his church, that's the kind of love that you ought to have. A like Christ love, a Christ-like love. It's a determined love. It's a love that decides to act in acts. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. God's love, Christ's love is, is one of choice. It's one of choosing. It's one of electing. It's one of predetermining. This type of love is also a willful love. A love in which we choose to do certain things for the person we love, with the person we love. It's not passive. It's not just an emotion. Sure, you'll have emotions, but the modern world says you fall in love. And if you feel good, then it's love. And if you don't, then it's not love. And so you commonly hear people say, I fell out of love with my spouse. I'm getting a divorce. That's just a cop-out for sin. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is something that you have within you that's emotional, yes, but it's being acted upon. Think of someone who says they love Christ, but they live like the devil. You would say, you don't love Christ. You've been living like the devil your whole life. What are you doing? The actions don't match up with what they're saying, and it's the same with love. If you love somebody, then you'll show it. It's willful. It's predetermined. Paul said in Ephesians 1 that in love he predestined us. And because of the love which God predestined, because of the love which he sent his son, now we can love others. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. So love your wife, husband, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. He gave of himself. He gave everything of himself. It had a purpose his love did. Wasn't I feel like loving you? Jesus didn't show up and live his life and say, I feel like loving the church. He did something. He went to the cross. He gave himself up. He willingly chose to do it. He gave his body to be crucified. He was not forced to do it. He laid down his life willingly for the church. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's giving love. And he's giving his whole self, his whole life. He's suffering the wrath of the Father on the cross. It's sacrificial. And then he says he gave himself up for her. Specifically for her. Christ gave himself over to death on the cross to redeem a specific people for his own possession. Who are these people? Well, Paul starts the book with that. We see that it's the church. Go back to Ephesians 1 now. Verse 4. Just as he chose us, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. That same phrase will be picked up in our passage today. Holy and blameless before him. In love. Same verb, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He's talking here about particular redemption. That Christ gave his life in an atonement for the sins of all that the Father had given him. He had a bride in mind when he was on that cross. It wasn't vague to him what he was doing. It wasn't some sort of amorphous people out there, but he he had a bride in mind. 
Just like we should, husbands, as we love our wives. We have our bride in mind, not somebody else's bride. Christ had his bride in mind on the cross. He says something about this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says in John 15, Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. He had a picture in mind. He knew God the Father's intention for the cross. He knew who he was dying for. I lay down my life for the sheep, he says, again in John 15. Christ died for his people, for his church, for all those who would believe. He didn't have his, his mind on anything else, not animals, not even the creation, even though it will all be restored. He died for his people. And husbands, that means we ought to give of ourselves for our wives, your own wife. Some men put more effort into pleasing other women than their own wife. Maybe they put more effort into pleasing their mothers than their own wife, their sisters, their daughters. Jesus gave it all for his bride. And he had his bride in mind when he did that. We ought to do the same. We're only on point one. We must set aside our desires, our selfishness, and pursue love for our wives. Every husband must deny himself for a time, must deny himself of resources, of self-gratification to show his love for his wife. You've got to lead in a way, husbands, that you are loving your wife and forgiving your wife. You're responsible for the marriage. And I'm speaking to husbands-to-be someday, too. If you want to be married, this is for you. Young men, single men, listen, this is for you. Married men, you can practice this today. This has immediate application. You've got to seek to reconcile. You're the leader in the family. You've got to seek to reconcile when there's a problem in your marriage. When your wife sometimes sins against you, you've got to lead in that way. Jim Neuheiser in his book on marriage says, Gospel love treats us as if we had perfectly kept God's law, even though we are sinners. In the same way, a husband should treat his wife as if she was a perfect wife, even though she sometimes lets him down. When there is conflict, the husband should imitate Christ by taking the initiative to bring about reconciliation instead of waiting for his wife to come to him. If you're a leader, you're a leader in all regards. Uh, We don't need to sit back, husbands, and not sacrifice our comfort, not sacrifice ourselves. And let our wives do the work of leading us into reconciliation. Did Christ sit around and wait for the church to do something first? Who sinned in that arrangement? Those that would become the church. They're the sinners. Christ didn't say, you know, I'm just going to wait for you guys to come and say sorry to me first. No, that's silly. We weren't even born yet. And yet he took the initiative. Sacrificial. Well, just before we move on from this point, because it's, it's so good, we've got to go to 1 Corinthians 13. Paul opens this up more. This is what real Christian love is. He's going to open up love and describe what it does. What does it look like? He doesn't need to describe the word. He needs to describe what it looks like, the actions. And certainly, even though this is to all Christians, it's applied in marriage. Because wife, husband, your closest neighbor is your spouse. So what does love look like in marriage? What does love look like in the church? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. 
does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Sacrificial love. That's what you're called to, husbands. Secondly, purifying love. Purifying love. We're called to sacrifice, but we're also called to help purify, could even say sanctify, our wives. A husband's love must be one that leads his wife into greater and greater Christ-likeness. This example is given to us by Christ's work on the cross. That's what we're going to open up and look at as Paul goes into this idea. And some will say, look, this is just a side note. This is Paul taking a side note. He's talking about Jesus. Husbands have no place in a wife's sanctification. Well, we see passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter that says otherwise. The spouse can play a role in that. And while no one but Jesus can sanctify a person truly in their heart, God uses means, doesn't he? He uses the means of other people to push us along, to help us along, to guide us along. And husbands, as a leader, you've got to help your wife grow in Christ-likeness. You've got to lead her in that way, like Christ did the church. So I think this does apply, and many do think this does apply as a parallel, as a comparison. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. Why did he give himself up for her? What's the purpose of that? The purpose was that he would sanctify her. The purpose of his love and his death for his church is so that she would be sanctified. The reason that Christ gave himself. There was a reason for it. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't just, let me show you my love, people. There was a purpose in mind. He wanted to make his church sanctified, holy before God, set apart before God. The church was not. The people that would make up the church were not holy. The believers, even in the Old Testament, who had looked to the Messiah and would be saved by the cross, were not perfectly holy. They needed to be made holy by a sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice, of course, is Christ. This is not an ongoing sanctification that he's talking about here. He's not talking about ongoing growth and holiness that we often think of. But here it's positional. It's going to take our whole life to become more and more like Christ. And when we die, we'll be like Him. We'll be perfectly holy. We'll be with Him. That's progressive. Throughout your life, you're growing in Christ-likeness. But here in this text, he's saying that Christ died on the cross to make His church positionally holy, positionally sanctified. Before you're a Christian, your position with God is not one of holiness. Your position with God is unholy, sinner. The wrath of God abides upon you. But when you believe in Christ, when when your heart is made new, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you and you have faith, now the cross applies to you. And you're positionally considered holy by God because Christ stands in your place. Positionally, you're with God in holiness. Not truly there, take your whole life, but positionally you are. This is what he means in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Such were some of you, talking about all these lists of sins that he just mentioned. Such were some of you, but you were washed in the past. 
But you were sanctified positionally already. When you first believed, you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. How did this happen? Well, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Christ sanctified His church by cleansing her from any defilement of sin, from all the guilt, from all the shame, from all the things that we had built up in our life because of our sin that were credited to our account. He comes and He washes that away. He washes us clean. Paul's just getting the picture in their minds because they've got to now apply this to their own marriage. Well, why did Christ do that? Well, it happened because that was his goal. How did he do it? Through washing of water, it says. Not literally water. This is not baptism. This is not getting dunked under water. Some people try to read that in here. This is a picture. It's an image of the new covenant. And the new covenant, Ezekiel said, that God says, I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So that gets picked up in the New Testament. There's a cleansing from sin. How, how can you be holy before a holy God? There's no way unless God does it for you. And how does he do that? Through the cleansing that Christ gives. Through the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Titus 3.5, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Spirit. Now, all of this takes place through the Word. He said it was, it was by the Word, through the Word. The Word, the Gospel, brings about this process. The channel by which we receive cleansing is the Gospel. The person doing it is Christ who then sends His Spirit to cleanse us, to make us holy. So Christ loved His church so much that He went to die for rotten, dirty sinners to make us clean, to make us holy. But Paul goes deeper than that. He says, why did he do that? Why did he make us clean? Verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, all her splendor, her beauty, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is more language that describes how pure the church will be in the age to come when Christ returns. We're not there yet. Positionally, yes, we are. But he says in the future, he might present to himself. It's his church in all her glory. Like a bride on her wedding day. That dress today, well, it used to be white. or very variations today. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't be right for a bride to walk down the aisle with a white dress and a huge dirty stain on it. And some food from the previous day hanging off of part of the dress. Christ is saying, this is going to be a pure bride. That's the ultimate purpose of the cross. So why did Paul go down this rabbit hole of theology of the cross? Yeah, it's important for us to understand, but he's, he's covered a lot of that already in Ephesians. Why did he insert it right here into this discussion of husbands love your wives? Did he just sort of go down this rabbit hole for his own benefit so he could talk about theology like many of us like? No, there's some application to the husband. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. How did he love her? Sacrificially, but also with a purifying love. His desire was to make the church pure. Husbands, we have to lead our wives spiritually is the analogy here. How do we apply this? We've got to lead our wives spiritually. Positionally, it's already been done. But remember, there's that progressive now, progressive sanctification. 
And husbands, you've got to lead your wife in such a way that encourages her towards godliness. Some husbands don't do that at all. Others do a great job of it. Others are sort of lackadaisical. It's not my job. That's God's job. He'll, he'll make her holy. No, husband, you can do it. You can encourage her. You can help her. God, of course, will make her holy if she is his. But you can aid that process. You would not make an excuse, husband, that, you know what? We don't need the church. We don't need preaching. We don't need the Bible. God will make her holy. He uses means. The word, preaching, singing. Christians around you, that's what the church is. And if you're married and you have a believing husband, who's the closest person to you, wife? Should be your husband. You have a huge influence. In fact, he's going to say to fathers, bring your children up in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. And to think, oh, we can't help our wives get more holy, but we sure can't help our kids. The Bible says that. No, it says that about your wife. Right here is the analogy. Christ did it positionally. Now let's help. Let's help progressively. We've got to lead her, husbands. You've got to lead her by encouraging her to be in the word. To be in the word. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. You've got to get your wife in the word. Whatever that takes, you've got to help her. You've got to teach her from the word. You've got to help her understand the word. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, If a woman desires to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church, meaning to get up and present and teach. Let them ask their husbands. Now the husbands all say, Well, I don't know that much. My wife sometimes knows more than me. Who am I to lead her spiritually? Well, you're her husband. And God said you should do it. He says right there, she ought to ask you. She ought to ask you. If you're behind, then catch up. If you need to learn more, then get after it. Don't let that be an excuse. You can't make that excuse in your own life either. Well, I just don't know that much, God. I'm sorry. You gave me a church that taught the word. You gave me the Bible and a thousand different translations. You gave me Bible software, friends, Bible studies. No, man, we don't make that excuse. And we can't do that with our wives either. Let's lead them. Let's encourage them to be in the Word. Help them understand the Word. All of us start somewhere. I remember when I was not leading my family in this way, the first few years of my marriage, and God convicted me. So much so that then I couldn't get enough. I've got to catch up. I've missed all these years. Catch up. Get after it. Lead her spiritually. It also means making sure she's in church, a church that preaches the Word. Make sure she's in church on Sunday. Make sure you're always part of a good biblical church. Help your wife, whatever that takes. Some of you, that's just helping her get there with the kids and all the things. Others, it's just encouraging her. Others, it's just saying, no, we need to go. You need to be there. Make it happen. She wants to be in Bible study. Encourage her to do that. Help set things up so that she can go. It also means, purifying love means that you don't tempt your wife to sin. You don't tempt her to sin by angering her, by irritating her, by setting up things that will cause her to sin, by entrapping her. And of course, don't lead her into any sin. How can you purify your wife if you're leading her into impurity? Don't say that you have no influences on your wife's sanctification. She's following you. And sometimes she can unknowingly be led into sin. Sometimes she desires to be led into sin. It doesn't matter. You're not to do that. 
TV, books, internet? What's the media that's coming through your house, through your marriage? Men, you're held accountable. We talked about this with the wives. You are accountable before God for these things in your marriage. You're the one that God's going to come to. You're the one that God's going to discipline if you're not leading in this way. Now, maybe you haven't done as well as you want to do. Maybe you haven't been leading your wife in this way. Repent. Ask for God's grace. Move forward every day. Get help. What do you need? We've got men here that can help you. Number three. How are we doing so far on this, guys? Two quiz questions down. Number three, a caring love. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church sacrificially. He loved the church with a purifying love. And he loved the church with a, with a caring love. He cares for them, especially here in mind as physically and emotionally. Husbands must care for their wives in such a way that provides for their needs. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. That's just natural to love yourself. Love, nurture, take care of yourself. That's a natural thing, men. In the same way, because his wife is part of him, he should love, nurture, take care of her as well. God made us naturally to take care of ourselves. For no one ever hated his own flesh. It's a general principle. Now, there are certain pathologies, certain sinful lifestyles where people destroy their body. People commit suicide. But in general, God made us so that we would take care of ourselves. And in general, that happens. But yet, men, we don't always take care of our wives as well as we take care of ourselves. We don't always take care of their, their needs like we should. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. These are great words here. The Greek word here under nourish means to provide food for, with the implication of a considerable period of time and the food being adequate nourishment. It's only used here in the New Testament. Cherishes. Has the idea of making warm, comforting. One other time it's used, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. But we prove to be gentle among you, gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for. There it is in the, that verse. Tenderly cares for her own children. Men, it's unnatural to mistreat your wife. It's self-destructive. You're hurting yourself when you mistreat your wife. That's not nourishing. That's not cherishing. It's sinful to abuse her in any way. And God will bring about discipline in your life if you do so. So what this means is that we care for our wives. We take care of them just as Christ, he says, also does the church because we are members of his body. Does Christ not nourish and cherish his church? Does he not feed us? Does he not give us everything we need? Has he not given us the word? Has he not set up the church in such a way that we have leaders? We have people serving with spiritual gifts. Every spiritual gift that's needed today is in the church. Has he not blessed us with a place to meet even? Has he not blessed us with more and more people coming to know the Lord and joining the church? Has he not blessed us with a new elder? Has he not blessed the church with everything that we need, even as we grow and need more? He continues to bless us. Does Christ not nourish and cherish his church? We've got to do the same for our wives, men. We've got to do the same. So let's look at physically. Physically, what does this mean? It means that you're the provider, the one who shows her care in providing. 
Husbands ought not to see their wives as the primary provider in the household. That's a reversal of what God's design. God's design for the man to provide for his family. Sometimes men are between jobs, can't be helped. But the idea is that men are to provide. Love your wife means that you're the primary provider working to take care of your family. And we saw this. We saw this in the garden. Man was given the job to take care of the garden. And then with the curse, even we saw this. What's the curse against man? That his toil will be hard. That by the sweat of his brow, he's going to get food. Thorns and thistles, sweat and work. The thing mentioned for women, childbirth. Childbirth would be harder. So, of course, sometimes the woman will do some things that are needed. Sometimes there's single moms who have to work. But the idea is that God has designed the marriage in such that the man will take care of the physical needs. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone, speaking of men here, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Speaking of a lazy Christian who doesn't want to work, doesn't want to take care of his family. This physical provision includes all areas of the marriage, not just money, financial security, of course, physical intimacy, men, fulfilling the father's role in the home, leading by example, making sure that your home is going to stand up. Often have a honey-do list, don't we? Many honey-do lists. My wife has a long list. She has a long list of things for me to fix. Whatever physical needs that she has, you've got to take care of that. And you should want to, and you should love to. But not just physically. That's sometimes easy for many of us, right? That's easy. I'll bring you flowers. I'll take you to dinner. Check, check, check. But emotionally, too. Cherishes and nourishes. Not just physically, but emotionally. That means that you've got to be with them, that you've got to talk with them, that you've got to do things with them. What good is it to go to dinner if you don't even talk? Talk with them. Don't just talk about yourself, guys. Don't just talk about what you did and your day and your work and your dreams and your goals. You've got to listen as well. You've got to put your phone down. You've got to get away from the computer at home. You've got to listen to your wife. Listen. Talk. Have a conversation. She needs that. You need that. You probably get a lot of that. You probably get more of that sometimes at work or in the church. But, but your wife doesn't, especially if she's a stay-at-home mom. She's not getting much of that. The number one problem that I see in marriage counseling is lack of communication. It always starts there. Now, it ends up in many different places, divorce, sin, adultery. But it often starts with just a lack of communicating well, a lack of talking and communicating clearly with our spouses. Assumptions, wrong body language, evil speech, just ignoring the other spouse. I've seen many times where the husband just completely ignores his wife. He gets home from work. He gets on his phone looks at social media. He's not concerned at all. Maybe he's concerned about the physical aspect of the marriage, but not at all about this emotional aspect. And then one day he's shocked that she left. He completely abused her, really. He just, just ignored her. This type of abuse. Men, this means you can't work all the time. You can't spend all your time at work. You can't spend all your time at work, just come home, eat a meal, go to sleep. That's it. Get up the next day, go again. You've got to intentionally choose to spend time with your wife. You can't just, oh, I'm working, I'm providing. Yeah, but what about her emotional needs? Is that not a need? We often blow that off as guys, but it's in the scripture. Jesus has emotions. Emotions aren't wrong. They have to be governed by our mind, but they're not wrong. They're expressions of what's in our heart. 
And love will show itself in talking and listening and spending time with your wife. That means learn as much as you can about her. What she likes, what she dislikes, what gives her joy. Go to First Peter verse 3. Is this stuff biblical that I'm talking about? Some of you guys are thinking emotional. I don't think that's in the Bible. First Peter 3. Let's make sure the pastor is still staying biblical, right? First Peter 3, 7. Peter puts it like this. You husbands in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker. Physically, she's weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Understand her. Guess what? That requires talking, requires listening, spending time with her. You can't understand somebody if you're never around them, never listening, never talking. That's biblical. You might think that's impossible. How can I understand a woman? How can I understand much less my wife? Well, he says you can if you seek to do it, if you work at it. Often a man's not put forth any effort. If he says that, if he says, I can't understand my wife, he's not really put forth effort. He's given up. He said, she's made me mad. I don't want to understand her. He's not spent the time required. Husbands, what is she like? Well, what input does she have in certain decisions that you need to make? Seek to understand her, to lead her. Don't micromanage every situation. Don't, don't tell her every little thing she needs to do. But seek to understand who God has made her to be. What is, what is her natural gifts? What are her gifts in the church? What does she love to do? Does she love flowers? Does she love, do you put the kids to bed? Does she love just going out to a meal? Does she love a vacation away? Does she love the house you're in now? Does she want a smaller house, a bigger house? All of those things. What's her favorite color? What's her favorite movie? What's her favorite book? You figure it out. It's not the same for everybody. Understand your wife. What's her favorite book of the Bible? What's her testimony? Those are important things. Husbands, you supply what your wife needs. That's the idea here. Take care of her. She shouldn't have to look outside the marriage for other things to fill this need, this desire that God has given her. Does the church need to look outside of Christ? Does the church need to go somewhere else because Christ is not providing for us? No, he provides everything. And we ought to provide the things that God has called us to provide for our wives. When Christ cares for his church, he's caring for himself since the church is his body and that brings him more glory. When husbands care for their own wives, they are caring for themselves too. Last point, number four, gospel displaying love. A gospel displaying love. This really is the result of the first three. If you do the first three, then four will just be obvious. Now there's a comparison that we've been seeing here. Husband and wife, Christ and the church. That's the analogy that he's laid side by side. Verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He now going all the way back to Genesis, Paul is. He's now pulling from the Old Testament, Genesis 2.24, to show that God's purpose in marriage is that two people, one man, one woman, shall come together in marriage and be one flesh. It just supports his argument that he's already had in the last point where he said that you're loving yourself when you love your wife. But he's going to take it even further in the next verse. Let's talk about this one flesh union. Yes, it's the sexual union. That's the ultimate expression of oneness that he's got in mind here. But, but by implication, that union implies all other parts of the marriage. 
like physical union implies that you have all the other parts of the marriage. I know in our culture, that's not the way it works. People do whatever they want. They sin against the commands of Scripture. But in marriage, that's how it was designed to work. The one flesh union is the expression of the emotional, the physical, even the spiritual aspects of marriage. The point is that this verse proves that, that man and woman are one. So when you care for your wife, you're caring for yourself. We get that. We all know this intuitively. Often we, we, we grew up in a home, or maybe you have one of these signs in your home today. If mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy. If the wife's not happy, the home's just not going to flow. It's not going to work right. Things aren't going to go well. Why is that? Because you're one flesh. And if she's not happy, that's going to affect you. And kids in the mix, that's going to affect them. But especially husband and wife. If you care for her like Christ does the church, she'll be flourishing. But if not, she'll be unhappy and suffering. But, but here's where the big surprise comes in the next verse. So he's taking that quote from the Old Testament. Look how he follows it up. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Hang on a minute, Paul. How, how are you speaking with Christ, about Christ and the church when you just told us about marriage? Well, we have to break it down. The mystery here is the, is the key. Mystery, what is that? That's not something mysterious or hidden to us now. And the Greek's mind and the biblical mindset, it's something that was once hidden. Hidden in the Old Testament. What was hidden? Well, Paul's already told us all throughout Ephesians what was hidden in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in Christ, the church. The church. He told us about Jew and Gentile coming together in the church. He told us about how God was displaying how that would all happen to the angels through the church. He'll use this once again later in chapter 6. But here he's saying the church with regards to Christ and his body, that relationship, it was not revealed in the old. It's now revealed in the new. That's a mystery. And it's a great mystery because it was hidden back then and now it's been revealed. But add to that this analogy that he set up. What's he been talking about? Love your wives like Christ loves the church. Take care of your own body like Christ takes care of the church. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In context, we put it all together. He's saying that the mystery of the relationship of Christ and his church it's not been revealed to the new, and even marriage being a picture of that was not understood. It can't be understood because the church hadn't been revealed. Now that the church has been revealed, guess what Paul's saying? Your marriage displays, reflects that truth. Christ is like the husband, the church is the bride. Your marriage reflects that relationship. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You see the connection. MacArthur Study Bible says marriage is a sacred reflection of the magnificent and beautiful mystery of union between the Messiah and his church. Completely unknown until the New Testament. You're saying something about the gospel when you live out these commands. It's not just for a happy, successful marriage. Of course, that's going to be more successful and happy if you do what God says. But it's actually saying something about Christ, your Lord. It's not evangelizing. You've got to use words to evangelize. But people who know you and know you're a Christian, they're going to see something different in your marriage. Maybe they don't even know you're a Christian. How do you have such a good marriage, they might ask. You're reflecting 
this relationship between Christ and his church. It reflects the gospel. Now he closes out, verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. He just sums it all up here. Respect here is actually fear. Literally, it's phobotai, fear. But it means, often in the Bible, it does mean literally terrified, but it also means respect, reverence. This is what it means here. Not terror, but, but the wife ought to submit, have reverential respect based on the husband's God-given position of authority. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I just want to go through five ways that husbands often fail at this. Real quick, five ways. Some are excuses. Some are just actions that husbands take or don't take. One excuse, I'll love her when she shows love to me. I'll love her when she loves me. Or she doesn't submit like that text says, so why should I love her? Just picture Christ in the church. How does that work? Did Christ wait on us to show love first? Where would you be today if Christ waited on you to show love first? Where are you going to be? That's no excuse, guys. Does Christ withhold nourishment to the church? Only waits for us to submit? No, he loves his church no matter what. And husbands, you're called to love your wife no matter what. If she leaves you, if she divorces you, then she's not your wife anymore. But as long as she's your wife, you've got to love her. You should want to love her. Christ has commanded you to love her. Number two, the abusive husband. I said some things about this when we talked about the wife submitting. So I won't go back over all of those, but husbands who abuse their wives physically or emotionally. There's no place for it. It's a sure path to divorce, a path to church discipline, not to mention discipline from God himself. In the Bible, even abusive language is called blasphemy. That's the Greek word, blasphemy. Another word is reviling. The Bible says those who revile will not inherit the kingdom of God. Has Christ ever abused his church? Has he ever even spoke wrongly about his church? Blasphemed his church? Reviled his church? No. Abuse has no place in a Christian or even unchristian marriage. Number three, we have the foolish husband. The foolish husband. These are a little bit harder to spot than the previous two. This is due to pride. A simple picture is when a guy tries to put something together without using instructions. How does that usually work out for most of us? We just have to do it again. And then the next thing we buy, we still don't use the instructions. That's foolish, right? That's a foolish thing. Well, there's foolish husbands. And they make the same mistakes every time, over and over. There's instructions. There's people to help them. And they keep making the same bad decisions. And their wives have to follow them. They have to submit. But don't be the foolish husband, guys. You ought to look back and say, I never should have done that. You ought to admit that to your wife if you made a mistake. Too many husbands just go on making mistakes, their career choices, their, their jobs, where they move, what they do, the churches they pick, the bad churches they pick, and they never say, I should have never done that. A wife's got to suffer too when that happens. Just, just admit, just repent, confess. And before the passive husband, this is a plague on marriages today, the passive husband. The wife leads because he's passive. The wife wants to, to leave a bad church and, and go to a good church, but he's passive. Or the opposite. You're in a good church. Your wife wants to leave and go to a bad church, and you just say, you know what? 
That's fine with me. That's passive. I've seen that happen many times. Husband won't make decisions. The, the hard work is often due to the, the wife getting it done. Adam listened to his wife when he should have lovingly let her. And what happened? He was passive. Hey, you want to go eat that fruit? Go ahead. Abraham, he listened to Sarah when she said, here, take this maidservant, produce children. That'll make sure God's plans come into effect. Didn't end well. Israel's still suffering from that today. Don't be a passive husband. Lead your wife. Get input from her. Let her help you in the decision-making process. But you make the shots. You make the call. You lead in all the ways we've already looked at. And then lastly, it's kind of close to the passive husband is the lazy husband. And guys, we've all been some of these at times, haven't we? Foolish, passive, lazy, hopefully not abusive. The lazy husband. He doesn't like to love his wife in a Christ-like way because it requires too much work. He'd rather spend time watching football. He'd rather spend time on social media, video games, even studying the Bible, even going to all these church functions, learning Greek, learning Hebrew, learning theology. It looks great on the outside. All the guys are patting you on the back. They're impressed. Man, you're a, you're a godly man. want to be here all the time. Then your marriage falls apart. Why? Because he was lazy. It was much easier to get around a bunch of guys that would cheer you up, that would build you up, learning something like the Word of God. That's easier than going home and working on my marriage. He can sound spiritual. Sometimes the lazy husband says, I'm just waiting on God's timing. God's going to do it. I'm just going to wait on Him. Well, it's been a year now, honey. Are you going to make that decision? Oh, I'm waiting on God. He's going to send me something in the mail that tells me what to do. Guys, do what God's called you to do. He's not going to send you anything in the mail. He sent you a whole book. Do what it says. Do, do what this passage says. Stop being lazy. Get up and get after your marriage. If you don't keep up your house, what's going to happen? It's going to fall apart. If you don't take care of your car, it's going to fall apart. If you don't feed your pets, they're going to die. Same thing will happen to your marriage. If you don't take care of it, if you don't take care of your wife and love her, then it's going to fall apart. And even if she's in sin when she leaves, it all started back with your leadership. Love your wife like Christ loves the church. Let's ask for God's help in this. Lord, we need your help. We need your, uh, your grace to do the things that are hard for us. Often we are lazy. We're passive. We don't want to make the decisions that might, that might mean we have to repent in the future, that we have to confess our sins, that we have to say we're foolish. Lord, we need your help to lead our families, our wives. Help these men who are going to be married in the future to, to already have this in their hearts and in their minds. We want to be like Christ. And I pray for the marriages in this church. I pray that they would stay strong, that they would both husband and wife seek the Lord, do what he's called us to do in this passage and the previous passage on wives. Help us to honor you, Lord. Give us your spirit more and more to do this, to have the energy, to have the power, to have the ability. We love you, Lord. We want to reflect the gospel in our marriage. Give us your grace to do so. Amen.